Hey, welcome everybody to the Best Small Business in the World podcast. I'm Scotty McHugh here with Matt Fitzsimmons. And today, Matt, we're going to talk about getting more out of your team than the sum of its parts. Mm, it's an interesting topic, this one. And as it turns out, I'm actually wearing black today for a reason. And no, it's not a funeral. <laughs> so um, I, I know why. <laughs> <laughs> you know why, yeah. Um, this is a really interesting topic because we, you know, you and I, we, we both look at um, a lot of businesses and we see a lot of individual stars and we talk to people about managing individuals and that sort of thing. And, and, and that's, it's, it's critically important. We know how to manage people and we know how to focus a team and, and all that sort of thing. But how do you create the synergy that makes a team bigger than the sum of its parts, makes it more powerful than the sum of its parts? And there's some really good examples, and obviously there's one that I'm very close to, uh, but we, we see these parts, these sort of things all the time. Uh, the example maybe to start with is the All Blacks, right? So the All Blacks um, are our New Zealand national rugby team. They have the best winning record of any rugby team um, that's that's ever been. Um, they are noted by some people as being uh, the best international sports team in the world. Bloody blah, blah, blah. Like the, you know, if you've heard well, of the All Blacks, you'll have an understanding of them, right? Let, let's give for those who haven't heard of the All Blacks. One of the one of the statistics that's really stood out for me that's kind of insane is the All Blacks have a, about a 77% win rate since 1906. Okay, and when I first found out about them, that was, what, 10, 12 years ago, that was the win rate then, and it's still the win rate. It's, not, it's, it it's actually much, it's, it's much better than that now. It's about 88%. Well, well mm, since 1906, I think the overall win rate is like 70, 77, 78. But... Um, yeah. The, the other thing that's amazing, though, is like in current, current, right, current times, New Zealand's population is around 5 million people. And they're going to the World Cup to play, they'll play France in the first round. It probably will have already happened by the time it gets published, but France is a population of 68 million. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, and it probably, I mean, France is a very, very good team, right? But the All Blacks have a really good chance of winning this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're playing them at the Stadium de France in the opening game of the World Cup. Um, like, if, if there's a game for the French to win, um, you know, they're at home in front of their home audience and in a, in a fantastic ground playing against, um, you know, the, the rugby team with the best winning record ever. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's everything for them to win and for us to lose. Whether we do or not, I mean, you know, time will tell, but. Um, right. Um, but yeah, so so and they interestingly, if you look at the amount of rugby players that most of the other countries in the world have, they have more rugby players than what we have as a country. We've only got a, a, a population of five million and a playing pool of about, I think it's about two hundred fifty thousand people who play rugby in New Zealand. Um, and like um, France, I think had six hundred thousand. England had like six hundred thousand players, and yet we regularly. Um, kick their butts, which is fabulous for a Kiwi. Um, so, um, but yeah, but and the winning record, interestingly, since the professional era went up to, um, which kicked in in the, in the early nineties, I think the professional rugby actually became yeah. a became a thing. Uh, it went from seventy seven percent overall, which is what it was for forever, um, to eighty eight percent, and I think we're sitting at about eighty eight percent now, um, mm-hmm. and we'll re- we'll regularly go through entire seasons without losing a game. Um, 
that's that hasn't happened for the last couple of years, but it, it has happened in the past. Um, so, but but if we just use that as a uh, as as a as a as a tool, a platform for having this discussion, because what we regularly do is we don't pick the best players to be in the All Blacks because there's a certain culture that they have to sign up to when they join the team, and we're not here to talk about culture necessarily, but it's part of the conversation. So. When you've got a, a team that perhaps doesn't have the best players but still has the best um, best playing record, how do you get that? Because on the surface of it, it doesn't make sense. You've got a team with potentially better players losing to a team without you know, without the talent, but with something else. What well, are your so, thoughts on that? Well, I, I think you've got a lot of – I mean, the All Blacks is a great example because of the longevity of it and the way they've stuck with it. So it's a great illustration. There are other examples, though. The the challenge, the problem with the other examples is they're way more temporal. They're way more temporary, right? So the San Francisco Giants won the World Series in 2010 and then repeated two more times in the next four years. They won the series in 2010 with a team that everybody looked at exactly like you were just, just describing – they didn't have the marquee players. You know, it was this you know, ragtag group, the the local here, we were talking about torture and believe, and, you know, they kept pulling it out and they kept beating these other teams. And it did have a lot to do with culture and with leadership. Um, and if you go back farther, the Niners, the 49ers here in San Francisco, you know, during the Joe Montana, Bill Walsh, era and then um you know steve young after that and you know you changed the cast of characters but it was again the leadership and the culture at that time was qualitatively different than what it is today they're trying to recapture some of that now and we'll see how it goes but that was you know that was a dynasty of a team and you look at the golden state warriors and i know i'm talking about all bay area stuff right now but um but they similarly have created an amazing culture and, you know, have had uh, incredible success. Now that may be coming apart a bit uh, with some of the things that are happening as well, but that again goes back to the leadership and culture. And then if you really want to go back for the old timers, John Wooden is a great example of mm. a leader and structure and values and, you know, perspective and stuff on, um, you know, with the UCLA basketball program back in the 70s and the 60s and 70s. And I was watching a program the other day and it was amazing the list of characters of basketball players talking about when they played there, how amazing it was, how great it was, how what a huge impact he had on their lives. I mean, we're talking, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think. Um, you can start going down a list of the greatest players in the history of the sport kind of, you know, and it was, it was really, really remarkable um, to look at these guys and see who, who had gone through that and then took those values, mm. took that motivation on with them into the next level of their career. Mm. Yeah. So, so what, what is it? I mean, you know, what's really interesting is there's a book and it's a great book. You get a chance to read it. It's called Legacy, uh, James Kerr. It's all about what makes the All Blacks the All Blacks as, as a rugby team. But let's park that. Let's park them for a second. But how do you create a synergy within a group of people that, and, and at various levels of talent and ability and capability and that sort of thing and, and, and training and experience and that sort of thing so that they all come together to 
to become more than, than than the sum of its parts. One of the answers that I see is is um, those companies that have internal training systems. So internal training, so that the, the the stars will train up the other people, not necessarily external training, which can be really valuable as well, mm-hmm. but an internal training system um, to bring people up to speed with what it means to be doing things our way. Um, I see that as being critical go. to passing on the passing on part of the legacy. Well, that right there, though, what you just said, the way do things our way, the way we do things around here, that's where the core values come in. And it's, mm-hmm. I think, way too often misunderstood or people look at values and they see a plaque on the wall or they see these aspirational things and they aren't necessarily followed. If you're setting them properly, right, they are they are the way we do things around here. They are behavioral in nature. They describe what you expect of each other. Um, it's a minimum standard. Right. It's not it's not what we hope to have. It's it's you have to meet this standard, Um, you know, and when that's done really well and put into effect, it can have amazing results. But uh, what I see all the time and we just experienced this with um, the youth soccer club this weekend, the, the, the leader, the founder kind of violated the values, you know, and in doing so. It really, you know, anytime you do that as a leader and you put yourself first and you break, kind of break the rules that you've, you know, that you profess to follow and that you expect everybody else to follow, you really, really undermine your own credibility and integrity. And, you know, you can recover from that, right? But that's hard. And, Mm. and you've got to, you know, there, there are steps to do that too. But the, the simplest way is if you, if you're declarative about the expectations, behavioral expectations for your team, for the players, for the coaches, for the managers, for your, you know, whatever your organization looks like, you got to follow them. And you mm-hmm. as the leader, the founder, um, you know, you're, you're, you got to live them. If you don't, you're going to undermine your own credibility, um, you know, in, in the organization and with your team. If you don't love them, how can you possibly expect anyone else to? Exactly. So another thing that I see is um, uh, in these really, really high-performing teams is that they have clear leadership, uh, but they have leadership at multiple levels. And often Mm -hmm. these are Mm -hmm. are groups and and teams that can actually run themselves if they're allowed to. And and so I'm I'm working with a a business. um, They've got 45 people. Um, they have team meetings um, once a week where they have the individual work groups where they where they meet. Um, the boss doesn't go anywhere near them. Um, he, he'll pop in occasionally to say good day and how can he help. But mm-hmm. these are self self regulating, self um, governing and and managing teams. And often, and this is a really interesting thing. So you go into this, some of these meetings, and the person who is technically at the top of the hierarchy says the least. All he says is, you know, and a couple of them, he'll go in there and say, hey, guys, uh, morning, everyone. Um, cool. Let's let's start. Who wants to go first? And then they, the team actually do the the, the talking and the the um, uh, the communicating and, and all that sort of thing. And often you see him and I'll sit there and go, good meeting, guys. Well done. And just walk out. And at the end of it, and he said, literally, he said like a couple of words, that's it. He doesn't need to because the team, they know what they're there to do. They know how to do it. His job is to get out of the way so they can. Right. So that whole um, that whole self-governing team thing is is can, 
can be really clear with a with a clear vision, mission, uh, BHAG goals, priorities, all that sort of stuff. Right. Your job as a manager is to get out of the way so they can do it. And I've seen some really great examples of that. Yeah, and, and another part of your job as the manager is is to recognize the positives, right? And that's something that ends up not being done enough. Um, you know, when you have these core values, one of the things you taught me, Matt, way back was to incorporate core value stories into your meetings or into your one-on-ones, mm-hmm. right? And what I love about that is that basically creates a process around recognition that is largely peer-to-peer. It's not me. It's not me, the founder, running around, um, you know, trying to catch people doing what's right. You know, there, I mean, you hear that sometimes, right? That That's a terrible process, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's extremely kind of one-sided and biased and it's from one perspective and you might be there at the right or the wrong time or, or any number of yeah. things, right? But when you've got the peers, the people who are working side by side with people, you know, every day, coming to a meeting with a, with a core value story, who, who it was, what the value was, and what that individual did that exemplified and personified that value, um, you know, then you ask them, did, did you share it with them yet? Um, they've been recognized to the supervisor or the boss, whoever. Um, they've been recognized to, you know, to, among each other. It's just a really, really powerful way to reinforce the positive behaviors that we want, uh, you know, we want to see. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, a, it's so much more the carrot than the stick. And, you know, that's the other thing that is so much, it's, it's so much more powerful than trying to be the hall monitor, you know, or oh, the traffic cop, yeah. right? Your, that's just terrible. You're going to fail at that at some point anyway. So that doesn't work. That's not a scalable sort of a, a solution to anything. Um, it's, um, it, it, it's crazy. The other thing that I um I, I tend to find in those businesses that have a you know, a, um, a talent pool that's greater than some of its parts is that they are really engaged with the business. And there's a couple of tactics that you can throw in here that are really, really simple to get engagement. And, and, and one of the key ones that I see is they're constantly, like at least once a week, doing um debriefs and going, cool, how did that go? And and often we do debriefs on things when they don't go well, because we want to learn from things that didn't go well. Right. These teams tend to do debriefs on when things do go well because they want to get connected with what works as much as what doesn't. They're sure they want to work on the stuff that doesn't work, but they want to get connected with, hey, this went really well. Cool. So when you actually do that debrief and you actually recognize, hey, this is the thing that we did and it worked really well, then you can duplicate it because you're conscious of it. It's like, ah, I did that last time and it worked really well. So so that's cool. Um, And I see that happening a lot with those teams, they they understand, and you know, just by doing a simple debrief, what works and and what doesn't, and then how to duplicate it. Mm-hmm. So, I see that being, um, yeah, a, a really powerful tool for those teams. And again, they do it themselves; they don't have to be prompted by the boss. They just have that normally as an agenda item in their weekly meeting, and you know, they'll do a debrief on something or everything or I don't know, whatever. But it seems to work really well. No, the debrief is great. Um, and again, the positives, right? You're reinforcing the positives. So really what you're talking about here, though, Matt, is you're creating a culture, right? A, a, yeah. Well, right. And people get, I, I've had folks on LinkedIn chime in and say, oh, cultures, you know, it's fluff, it's frou-frou, it's whatever. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And what's fascinating to me is 
whether you, and we've talked about this in the past, both on and off the podcast, right? But you want to create a culture with intention. You want to create deliberately create the culture. Otherwise it happens by default. And there is a culture. That's kind of the other thing. There is a culture. There is a way things get done and you can see it. You can feel it. But, you know, and we're not talking just about your business, but any business you walk into, you know, you walk into a coffee shop, you walk into a restaurant, you go into an auto, you know, auto repair shop or tire store, car dealership or whatever else. There is a culture. There's a way people do things there. And sometimes it's terribly dysfunctional. And, you know, and other times it knocks your socks off and you're like, wow, this is really awesome. Um, But I, I, I'm willing to bet you that anytime that you're thinking, wow, this is really awesome. It didn't happen by mistake. It didn't happen without being deliberate and intentional about what, you know, clear, clear about what we expect from every individual on the team. Yeah. It's a really great point in this book, actually. Um, all black culture is is a defined thing. They've actually defined the culture. Um, and it's it's very much along, as you can appreciate, it's all about humility and being a good bugger. And you know, there's some things in there, and they are very, very well defined and they are lived truly by by every person in the team. And they're a really good example, I think, of where culture becomes the key performance uh, driver. They that the culture drives the performance. One of them, um, one of the values is around you um, are only a custodian for your jersey. So your jersey got a number mm-hmm. on the back; it's your name on it. You're only ever a custodian for the next person. So, and your your job is to leave the jersey, your jersey, in a better position than when you found it. So that's an ever increasing level of 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 performance, of professionalism, of capability, and that sort of thing. And, and that's just one. There's 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 a there's a bunch more. Um, but they become the biggest drivers because they drive everything else that you actually do. Um, and yeah, you and I, we go on about culture. And I'm sure if you're listening to mm-hmm. this podcast, you're probably thinking to yourself, man, these guys are banging on about culture all the time. You know, surely it's <laughs> yeah. not that much. Surely I, can just, <laughs> surely I can just whip my staff harder and, and, and they'll go hard. But this is the this is we talk about this for a reason because it is so so critical if you want to do more than just be a business that's open on a Monday. It is such <laughs> a big driver of a great business is culture. And we bang on about it because we've seen it when it doesn't work. Both Sturdy and I have seen it when it doesn't work, and we've both seen it when it works really, really well. And yeah. the effort, this is the part that, that I love about culture. You put a little bit of effort in up front to get it going. And more often than not, that's the hard work done. Then it's a maintenance thing to make sure it still lives. But it's not like you've got to go and drive the culture all day, every day. It's just there. And it drives the whole business. So, right. you, well, you know how you drive it, though, every day is you you recognize people for doing the positives. And then you pick people who fit with your expectations and the culture. And that's the other, you know, and when, and by the way, when you hire somebody who doesn't fit, having them stick around undermines your culture, right? Mm -hmm. It starts to change the expectations that everybody else in the team sees. Like they, they realize that you're tolerating a behavior or level of performance or what have you, that isn't what we've, stated it isn't what we've professed and that again causes a real disconnect and confusion and um 
you know, sometimes alienation. And the worst part is often among your A players, like the people mm-hmm. who embody the culture, who are working really hard, who do a great job. They're the ones that get disenchanted with that. So, you know, mm-hmm. select the right people. And when you, when you don't, because we all don't, by the way, we all make bad hires. It, it's, it's inherent in the system. It's going to happen. The, you know, you can skew the ratios. If you have a really great hiring process, you can get it to 75, 80% of the mm-hmm. right people, but that still means one out of five people you hire is not going to fit. And you, you've got to do something about that quickly. You've got to figure that out, by the way, um, yeah. quickly, because, you know, me and Matt, you, you and I both know that pe- some people have the right answers, right? They can get through the interview. They can be charming. They get into the team. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. This isn't the person we thought we hired. You know, so how, many, how many times have we seen that? The person in, in front one of, of you, one out of five, one out of four. <laughs> well, and 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 that that's a good ratio. That's most a great ratio. Most businesses don't get that because they look at the person in front of them and they've got their tie done up and you know everything's straight right. and they're sitting there going, "Yes, I'm just the perfect employee." And then, right. and the way that I look at this is that you you hire them for their best, you hire them on their best day, but you get them on their worst day. So what does their worst day look like? I, I don't mind. I just want to know what their worst day looks like. And that's the hard part about interviewing is that you've got this, this pretend picture in front of you that you've got to dissect and get past the, this veneer of, of capability and professionalism and everything and get through to the real person because they've got to fit with your team. Um, and what I said to my clients is, 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 is it's an old catchphrase, but it's a, it's a cracker. Hire slow, fire fast. And make sure, make damn sure your team's involved. Right, right. The second part, make sure your team's involved, is critical and is often left out. Don't do it yourself. Include oh. other people in the process. They will see other things you don't see. You yeah. know, and and it also it protects against. You know, we have all this training on DEI and unconscious bias and all this other stuff that's happening in the world. Right, having a second set of eyes there with a different perspective goes a long way toward protecting against your own kind of subconscious, unconscious biases. Um, it was one of the best things I ever did in the hiring was get other people involved, trained up and taking over different parts of it because then we got much more of a fuller picture of the candidate of the person that was coming in. It wasn't just me, you know, and the, and the thing that we all fall for, if you're doing it yourself, we tend to like people who who like us, who are like us, who smile at us, we default to, if I, if we hit it off and I like you and you're affable and, you know, we're friendly and whatever, my default position is that you share my values, mm. that you share the same priorities, that you believe the same things. And there's absolutely no, <laughs> no basis in reality for that, right? None. I mean, it's got to be tested. You got to ask the right questions. You got to try to see and tease out what did they do in this kind of situation or scenario? How, what was their behavior? What did they learn from that? What would they do it differently? All those parts and pieces. And again, that's why you want that other, other person in there um, at every stage, pretty much, at least all the in-person pieces. You, You want other people involved so that they're seeing different things. They're sharing more. They're having different conversations. It also, by the way, it's great for the candidate because they start to see more of the team and believe and, and get a better read on the culture, the vibe. Are they the right fit? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
What's interesting about the All Blacks, and again, I, I, I apologize again for banging on about them, but no, no, that's um, they're a great example. So you know, let, the, let's um, learn the lessons. Um, the, the recruitment process that they go through is they find the person who fits with the team best, not necessarily the best player. There have been many controversies in my country. And bear in mind, this is our national sport. And this is our national sport in a country that there is practically no number two. Like Our second sport is so far down the list of priorities for us as Kiwis. This is, when we say it's the national sport, it's practically the only sport. And so every all-black selection is is, is cause for controversy. And I, very, very often. I seem to remember you have some sailors there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> they're just corporate hacks now. So um, no, no, no. They, took, they took the America's Cup out of New Zealand. So no, nah, we don't like them anymore. Um, <laughs> um, but very, very often, it isn't the best player who's selected to be the All Black, but the person mm-hmm. who lived the values the most. And when you look at the track record of the team, you'd have to say they've made some really good decisions based on not on, on who they chose not to include, who may be more talented but didn't fit with the values, than have who they have included. And and very often there is a better player sitting on the bench here in New Zealand, a better better athlete and, and rugby player. But if they didn't have the values, it counts for nothing. Mm. Well, in that, see, that's another area right there that we get wrong so much of the time. In hiring, we look at the resume, which is basically a list, um, you know, of places they've been. It doesn't really give us great insight into who who they are. Um, and we assess skills. And if they have the skills, we think they can play on our team mm-hmm. without having ever assessed, again, who they are. And who they are vis-a-vis, like our values, our fit, our, you know, our culture, are they going to fit in with a culture? Because the other thing is skills can be acquired, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody's willing to learn and work hard and study and be taught, you can you can improve the skill set. So why are we only hiring on skill set instead of, you know, are they the right person on the for the to, to be on the bus with us? Mm-hmm. It was a really good ad back in the 80s, and it was um, it's always stuck with me because I, I used to own an advertising agency, and this one I thought encapsulated so many things so simply. Um, and I'm not sure if it was Hertz or Avis, but it was for a rental car company, and it said, we're number two, so we try harder. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that encapsulated everything that I really liked about that particular business because everything they did was to try and become number one and they were desperate to become number one now. And I think they mm-hmm. did. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but they had this ad and it just encapsulated. Yeah. I, I totally get that concept. We're number two. So we try harder. So that, that looks at the, the, the person who maybe isn't the, the number one player. They could be the number two player and, but they're willing to try harder. I'm willing to go with the person who won't rest on their laurels, who will try harder than the person who sits there and goes, hey, how great am I? I pat myself on the back. I'm the man. I'd rather mm-hmm. have the person who's willing to sit there and go, I will work so hard for this team, for this group, for this business, for, for my teammates. That's the person I want to work with. Well, and there you have it, right? If you want to work with them and you've got each other's backs, you're going mm-hmm. to be able to accomplish and do more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's real straightforward. You know, in concept, it's not really that hard. In concept, yeah. I think you hit that nail on the head, mate. In concept, right. 
the concept, it's not that hard. Well, but we've got to understand it and we've got to have the concept first. Right. Mm. So so that part of things, we have to nail that down. And then once you get that, yeah, the implementation execution is hard. I mean, that's why people hire us. Right. That's what what we a big part of what we do. Um, It's why it takes time to get that stuff up and running. You know, it takes six months to a year to really codify and get the values in place and have the operate, you know, the standards and operating procedures around that, hire the next wave of new talent that's going to fit with that, you know, before it's really, really settled, it takes months at minimum, mm-hmm. you know, if everything goes really smoothly and, mm-hmm. you know, it's life, things don't always go really smoothly. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the, um, the, the other thing that I, if I see great teams, which have real synergy is that um, the leadership and the management have a very delicate touch of what they what they do and how they do things. So they don't necessarily go in and save the team all the time. They'll let the team sometimes figure it out for themselves. And there's no right. rule about this. But what I would say is that it's deliberately subtle management as opposed to um, deliberately overt controlling management. So they will choose very carefully what they become part of and what they don't become part of because – Yes, they probably have a lot of answers themselves, but it's not about them. Great leaders know that it's not about them, it's about their team. They will let their team figure out for themselves. So they're very deliberate and subtle in what they do management-wise um, and, uh, and and choose what to do and what not to do. So that was another trait that I see in, in really high-performing teams is the leadership actively chooses to sometimes lead and sometimes let other people lead and when they do intervene it's at a normally at a relatively subtle level it isn't a dictatorial sort of a thing um right right uh, it's more if you would it's, it's more guidance um than than anything because and, and like you say and you you often say this and you're absolutely bang on their job is to coach um you know manager as coach leader as coach that's their role and coaching often is about guiding as opposed to dictating. Uh, in fact, more, more often than not, it's about guiding uh, as opposed to dictating. So, right. um, yeah, if you, if you again, if you look at the All Blacks, the coach doesn't need to teach people how to play rugby. He doesn't need to teach them how to tackle and pass and that sort of stuff. Right. Same, as, you know, same as those basketball coaches that you've mentioned in the past. Like, no one needs to teach Michael Jordan how to, how to bounce a ball and shoot a hoop. Like, Right. That what they need is that that really subtle stuff at that top percent. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. no, totally, totally. Um, actually, that's probably a, that's a good topic for our next episode. We even have it written down already. When to coach and how, and when to coach mm-hmm. what way. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for that one because um, there there are some real nuances and some uh, ways for you to think about it. But again coming back and fostering the culture and being deliberate and intentional about that is one of your primary responsibilities as, as a founder, as a leader in your organization. And, and it pays off more than you can possibly imagine. Oh and yeah. I, I, again. And not just in money either, right? Oh, in it's in just frustration. Money. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's time. It's all that time that you spend that's, mm-hmm. that's, either wasted or, or time well spent. And, and again, right. we bang on about this. I know that if you listen to this podcast, if you if you talk to us, we will bang on about culture, but we know it works. Like it's, it's well, we're a broken why, record right? because the record is the absolute right one to play. Um, yep. So, yeah. And if you want to have a conversation uh, about that, please uh, feel free to get in touch. If you don't read that book, 
uh, which is great. James Kern Legacy, it's a wonderful book. Um, follow the All Blacks. <laughs> if you, if you... <laughs> Well, a plug, well, like a plug for New Zealand cost. rugby, right? <laughs> um, so it should be um, it should be a lot of fun uh, seeing how this actually plays out over the next few while. Actually, it's, it's cool that we can incorporate my my, my country's national practically only team um, into a <laughs> podcast, which I think is wonderful. So thank you for indulging me. <laughs> awesome, no problem. Thanks, Matt, and thanks everybody for listening today. Best small business in the world podcast. <laughs>